Good morning. We're in the middle of a series where we're looking at Jesus' miracles, and miracles from Jesus tell us a couple things. They tell us about who Jesus is, and they tell us about what his kingdom is like. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to zero in on Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, and we're going to find out what he says and, and, again, what that tells us about him and his kingdom. What it says in John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. We read, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. number of Marys in the Bible. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. <clears throat> we have Mary, who was a good friend of Jesus, her Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus was raised from the dead. We have Mary Magdalene. We have a couple lesser-known ones, Mary, the mother of James, and Mary Salome. Mary Magdalene was a Jewish woman who traveled with Jesus as one of her one of his followers, she is mistakenly seen in the Middle Ages as being a promiscuous woman or a prostitute. The Bible does not indicate this about Mary Magdalene. That is something that has lurked on the fringes of churchdom, but is really not true. What we know about Mary Magdalene is she is a woman from whom seven demons had been cast. Um, she witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. She was there. And she is the first person to see Jesus after the resurrection. When she first arrived at the tomb, it was still dark. Uh, She noticed, though, that the stone had been removed, and so she ran back without looking in to tell the disciples. And Peter and John then took off, and they beat her to the tomb. Um, She waited outside until they viewed the empty tomb 
John saw that and believed. Peter, we're not really sure, but Peter and John, then they go back into Jerusalem to the house that they were staying at. And Mary stays outside the tomb, and she's crying. She bends to look into the tomb and sees two angels in white. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She was weeping, not in this instance because Jesus had died, but because um, his body had vanished. And grave tampering was considered to be a very cruel um, act. Somebody that you venerate has died, and you at least want to preserve the sanctity of the tomb. And she imagined that somebody had come in and rifled the body. Um, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. So she turns and sees Jesus. The angels are there, but she doesn't know it's him. And Jesus said to her, again, woman, why are you weeping? <clears throat> Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The fact that Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener indicates that as a, as a resurrected person, Jesus wasn't shining. Uh, he looked like an ordinary person. Uh, she didn't recognize him. Uh, John could have included this detail because some things, myths, grew up over the years trying to explain away the resurrection, saying it really wasn't a resurrection, and it was the gardener who took him away. So the gardener was very concerned that people would walk on his cabbages or his tulips, you know, the way that goes. And so what he did, he whisked the body out so that there wouldn't be an untoward kind of invasion. The number of things people say to try to discredit the resurrection, I'm sure. One, if you heard this one, Jesus passed out in the tomb. And then he hops out in his grave clothes and and he pushes he pushes the stone away with his head, you know. And then he he hops in he and then there's a there's a, a Roman contingent, and so he kind of dodges them and he bounces into them and and nails them. And then he appears to the disciples as the Lord of Life. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. John might have included this little detail to confront a, one of the rumors at the time that the gardener it was the gardener that took him. Um, in resurrection stories, it's interesting. Jesus isn't recognized immediately. And whether it's the disciples on the way to Emmaus, he's talking to them, and and they don't recognize it's him. Evidently, there was nothing startling about his appearance. Uh, there was a conjecture that if Jesus goes through the grave linens, and if he shows up, it might be something like Terminator where he shows up naked. Uh, we can rule that aside because she wasn't startled, and if he hadn't been naked, she would have been startled. And so, she, okay, that, I'm sure you'll carry that away. You're really glad to that I have shared that picture with you. Um, he left the burial garments in the tomb, and uh, learned a couple things though about resurrected bodies, um, at least at this stage of things. It Jesus' body can be seen. And touched. Uh, Thomas will see in upcoming weeks 
is able to touch his body and put his fingers into his side. Um, Jesus continues to share meals with his followers. And while he is able to do that, his resurrected body can rise through linen wrappings and is able to walk through closed doors. Um, Jesus is often not recognized and is not recognized immediately. Uh, but when Jesus speaks to Mary, it sparks recognition. Jesus says to her, Mary, interestingly, says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says her name, calls her by name. That sparks it. And then she she says, Rabboni, my dear rabbi, my dear teacher. Um, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I love this detail. Do not cling to me means she is clinging. It's, it's stopping something that has already taken place. She launches herself at him, which is an, and just grabs him. And he, he says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus commands Mary to go and prepare his disciples for his coming and for the coming of the Spirit. Mary assumes, we can understand it, that Jesus is ready to pick up where he left off. And again, once we see Jesus' relationship with his disciples, it is not polite. They love him. When Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and what the power of that, if you remain in my commandments, you remain in my love, and they want to remain in his love. That's why they remain in his commandments for them. It's not duty. They love him. They love him. Mary throws her arms around him, and he says, I'll tell you what, go, go tell my brothers about what you've seen. And, and so she comes to do that. Um, Mary assumes, again, that he is ready to pick up. But earlier in the week, Jesus indicated what would occur and why he both needed to die and needed to rise. He said to the disciples earlier in the week at the, the, the meal he shared with them, a couple days prior, actually, it is to your advantage that I go away. He tells the disciples, for if I do not go away, the helper, another word for the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And what Jesus wants Mary to know and what he wants the disciples to know and what he wants us to know is that if he dies on the cross and if he rises from the dead, he is in a position to dispatch his spirit, and his spirit then is in position to take up residence in those who believe in him. So the, that question might we could ask then is, um, why is that such a big deal, and what difference does that make? Um, Jesus says, go to my brother's. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We get a hint here as to why spirit coming is significant. This is the first time. And I imagine when Jesus says this, there's a glint in his eye 
as he says a word he has never said before about followers. He says, go tell, go to my brothers. Brothers is a gender neutral. It can apply both to brothers and sisters. Jesus has never called, he called them friends. He called them servants. He never called them brothers because they were not brothers until this time. They might, they were close, but they weren't the coming, what he did allowed for something. That's what we need to understand. What happened at the cross? Why did Jesus die and why did Jesus rise? Um, Jesus, one of the resurrection we'll see is his ascension to the Father will result in his ability to pour out the Spirit and the Spirit coming to take up residence in followers of Christ creates a relationship that did not exist prior to that, that they couldn't really enter into. The Spirit that indwelt Jesus would be, on his, the basis of his resurrection, downloaded into mortals. The first time, the, in the Old Testament, the Spirit comes into people, but only people in leadership and only for specific periods of time. He doesn't come in as an abiding presence. So when David says, don't take your spirit from me, in Psalm 51, I believe, and then the reason why, because God sent the spirit in and sometimes dispatched, because the spirit was more someone, something to empower someone for a specific task. It wasn't about creating a relationship. It was about empowerment. Uh, Somebody filled with the Spirit did all kinds of things. But here in the New Testament, because Jesus dies and rises, the Spirit becomes an abiding presence. Um, That Spirit that allowed that's really got to understand, isn't it? How does the Spirit allow us to be children of God? And how does the Spirit enable us to relate to God as sons and daughters of his? What does the Spirit have to do with that? Let's look at that. Uh, Jesus died to release mankind from spiritual slavery. What it says in Galatians 3. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. By the way, Scripture here would would be referring to the Old Testament, which is the only Scripture that existed at the time. And so it tells us something interesting about Scripture. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all Sons of God, 
through faith. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Paul looks back on the impact of the Old Testament of the Bible and looks at, back at the impact of the Old Testament of the Bible on mankind, and he says all of mankind imprisoned under sin, locked up. The impact of the Old Testament, and this is not a problem, it's not a mistake, it's to imprison or confine individuals under sin, and so that we're trapped, imprisoned by sin. If we only have the Old Testament, and we don't know about Jesus, we don't know about what he did, reading and understanding, looking at it, paging through what's going to happen, and it's supposed to happen, it's, that's not going to be a liberation by reading the Old Testament. There's going to be an imprisonment. There's going to be a sense of incarceration. Um, we were held captive under the law, and the law here is talking about the Old Covenant. And it's the Old Covenant is broader, but it's defined, or a, a quick way to look at it is the Ten Commandments which is a, a Cliff Notes version of what the Old Covenant indicates. And what it says, if you obey the commandments, you'll be blessed. If you disobey the commandments, you'll be cursed. Very straightforward. And what Paul indicates here is that understanding, if you have that type of understanding over your head, if you look up at God and believe as the Old Covenant would have us and dictates, I will, I will bless you if you obey, and I will curse you if you disobey, understanding that coming from there is not going to be a liberating influence. You will be in prison under sin. Now, the sin that you commit might not be one of those kinds of sins, it might not be unrighteousness. There's a more virulent type of sin, self-righteousness. Jesus had no problem dealing with unrighteous people. Prostitutes, again, Mary Magdalene wasn't one, but Jesus had no issue really dealing with prostitutes. The thing that Jesus couldn't crack is a Pharisee. Self-righteousness was very difficult for him to deal with. It's a form of sin that's especially virulent, very difficult to deal with. And what ends up happening under the jurisdiction of Old Covenant, I'll bless you if you obey, and just, there is a sense we get confined in sin. We can't get out from under it. And if that's our understanding of him, we are locked up under sin. That's what Paul indicates. The law puts mankind in spiritual prison. Why would he do that? That's a fair question, isn't it? Did he make a mistake? Did he dispatch a law thinking this will help you? It's not helping you. No, he did it intentionally. There's no surprise here. Jesus is the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. It was eternally prearranged that God would put mankind under an enslaving influence and send his son to be the liberator, the redeemer, to release us from spiritual slavery and restore us to spiritual sonship. By the way, if you want a definition of what redemption, Jesus as a redeemer, to redeem means to untie. And there's two things that a redeemer, especially as it relates to Jesus, does. He releases us 
and restores us. So both of these points in on the sheet, Jesus releases mankind from spiritual slavery. Jesus restores mankind to spiritual sonship. Those are the two aspects of what a Redeemer does. He releases and he restores. He releases us from slavery. He restores us from sonship. So if Jesus is going to release us from slavery, he has to take us out from under the jurisdiction of the old covenant and move us under the jurisdiction of the new covenant. And that movement under one, under the new, that is what releases us from spiritual slavery, restores us to spiritual sonship as we understand the difference between the old and new and understand that at the cross Jesus died and rose to move us from one to another as we understand that. And it's not all at once. We increasingly become liberated and we relate to God more as father, less as master. Uh, Paul understood being held captive under the law better than anyone. He kept the law to the letter until he ran headlong into Jesus, and he understood that all his life he had been diligently serving and that he had been more and more and more enslaved to sin. That's why Paul was absolutely so pointed and zealous about not what you do, why are you doing it? If you are obeying in order to be blessed and disobeying in order to be cursed, it might lead to changing some external behaviors, but God doesn't look at behaviors. He looks at the heart, and the heart has problems, and we all live with this. But as we understand why he died, and why he rose, and who he is. That understanding sifts down, not just impacting our behavior, but deeply impacting our beliefs, and we begin to change. Change how? We begin to relate to God as a son and a daughter relates to a father, and here's what the Spirit comes to do. The Spirit comes to change the way you think about God the Father, for you to understand that he is your Father. And as that occurs, that is the influence of the Spirit. That is what he does. As that occurs, it changes you. It doesn't just change your behaviors. It changes your heart and changes you from the inside out, a change in beliefs leading to a change in behavior. You become to act, You well, you start to think and act more like your older brother, who is, who is Jesus. Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the cross, so that he could be our brother, God, our Father. It says the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The faith that liberates, you know what it means to be a Christian? To be a Christian means that we understand that Jesus' death takes us out from under the old covenant and brings us out under the new. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
and to be a Christian. And again, all of us, we, we, are, we come to clarity. We don't quite see it. Or we're, we, we're better than we used to be. And we, we're understanding this old and new covenant thing. If, and we're seeing a little more clearly, all of us, it feels slippery a little bit, maybe. Uh, but to the degree that covenant clarity comes into place, that's why we, we talk about it a lot. For me, it's inexcusable in a church not to define carefully the difference between old and new covenant. I just think it's inexcusable. That's why Jesus died. This is the new covenant in my blood. And again, you might be thinking, Mike, I don't quite get this. Hang around. We talk about this all the time because it's seminal. It's central. It's vital. Um, It says, by now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. To be a Christian is, is about coming out from under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. Jesus rose to restore mankind to spiritual sonship. Paul goes on in this in Galatians. Look what it says in Galatians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to, there's our word, redeemed. Do you remember what redeemed means? Two things. To restore, to release from slavery and restore to sonship. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law, to release them from slavery under the old covenant, to restore them to sonship under the new covenant. That's why he came. Um, He came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Roman families, let me tell you how this worked. Uh, A child was placed under the supervision of guardians and managers until the age in which he was legally able to become an heir. In Roman families, a lot of children died. They weren't, you weren't an heir to the family fortune immediately, but there was a process that you went through. You were under the supervision of a guardian until you were age 14 and then you were under the guardianship of a manager until a curator until age 25 during this period the supervision of guardians and managers was primary you didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time with dad and life wasn't really good you were you were forced to go to school, to be taught by the individual teaching there. It was, you were treated not much different than a slave. It's not that the father wasn't the father or that the son or daughter wasn't a son or daughter. There was still that relationship, but you did not experience direct contact with the father, you experienced more contact with the guardians and the managers. Um, the father temporarily delegated supervision to these individuals. It's not a mistake. It was planned. Uh, after this period of supervision was completed, age 25, the father took over 
and the child received the full rights of sons. Now, Paul looks at this adoption process, and what he does, he says, now let me tell you what this means and why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, why God would put an old covenant in place that would enslave. Why would he do something like that? That seems cruel. Paul explains the change brought about by Jesus. It says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's what Paul is saying. He's looking before Christ now, B.C. time. And if you relate mankind to an individual, so mankind in mankind's childhood, Paul likens mankind's childhood to the childhood of that Roman son or daughter. And they were under guardians and managers, hostile, harsh. And God put mankind, when mankind was in the child stage prior to Christ, under the same type of supervision, harsh, rule-based, not fun. You didn't get to spend, you really didn't even know your father that well. And that's what God did, that's for a period of time. Um, there was a temporary measure here. That's what Paul explains happened prior to Jesus' coming. God treated mankind the way a Roman father treated his child before the child was 25. The Old Testament reflects the supervision of guardians and managers. Why is the Old Testament kind of severe and harsh? Did God make a mistake? No, no, no. It's like being a Roman kid before you're 25. You don't get to be a lot with dad. You don't get to know him as dad. You get to be under the jurisdiction of guardians and managers for that time period. Then it says, but when the fullness of time had come, when mankind was at the place where the guardian and the managers could be set aside, and the father could step back in. Here's what it says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those. Do you remember what redeem means? Two words. Release from slavery, restore to sonship. That's what Jesus comes to do. Redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the old covenant was in place, did God relate to men and women as sons and daughters? When the old covenant was in place, did God relate to men and women as sons and daughters? No, he did not. He did not. Why didn't he do that? It was a phase in the way he creates children. God's not creating angels. He's creating sons and daughters who have the possibility of a relationship. And in God's wisdom, this is the way he did it. Two phases. One phase is difficult. But when the fullness of time comes, Jesus comes to usher individuals out from under that covenant into a new one. And that relationship, the second half of the Bible, reflects the supervision of the Father. This is why the New Testament is so different from the Old. In the New Testament, God relates to mankind, men and women, who believe in Christ as Father, which is something on the front side of Christ did not occur. 
That's why it's a mistake to assume that God is a combination of Sinai severity and Calvary kindness. God is not a hybrid. He's not six of this and six of that. You don't take the Old and New Testament and scramble it up in a mixer, and that's what God's like. You know, sometimes God gets angry and he wipes out civilizations. No. You say, well, Mike, did God change? No, God didn't change. God is a covenant-keeping God. That's what God, that's what this book reflects. This is a God who keeps his covenants. God didn't change. What changed? The covenant changed. Old covenant, new covenant, change in covenants? Huge change in, change in relationships? Huge change in relationships. Several hundred years earlier in Israel's history, there's a story that might help us understand. There was this king, awful king, like a Hitler. He was determined to wipe out the Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes um, had a son, Antiochus Eupater. Antiochus Epiphanes was taking a trip that was going to take him a while, and he had to leave his kingdom in charge. His son, Antiochus Eupater, was too young. He wasn't able, he wasn't at the place where he could act in his father's stead. So what, he, what Antiochus Epiphanes did, he put the kingdom and his son under the guardianship of a man named Lysias. So when Antiochus Epiphanes was away and Antiochus Eupater was the son in charge, he really wasn't in charge. Lysias was in charge of the kingdom and in charge of the son. Um, if Antiochus did not return, the kingdom would be placed into the hands of his son. God placing his children under the care of law is like Antiochus Epiphanes putting the kingdom under the control of Lysias. It was a temporary measure that was supposed to be suspended at the time when Antiochus Epiphanes came back. In the same way, when God sent his son, he took over the job of supervision personally. God set the law aside at that point, and he then becomes father. The difference between the Old and New Testament is about the change from delegated supervision to direct supervision. The father rolls up his sleeves, dispenses with the influence of law at that point. That's what happened. The law died when Jesus did. As a binding covenant, Jesus said, this is the what covenant in my blood? New. Can the new and the old covenant coexist? They cannot. They cannot coexist. One survives, one dies. The old covenant dies. The new covenant takes its place. Um, it says then, um, on this side of the resurrection, God sends his, the Spirit into us to teach us to relate to him as sons and daughters. Look what it says in Galatians. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If 
God has related to mankind in a distant way. What can he do to bring about the ability to look at him in a different way? You know what he does? His son dies, rises, and the spirit that dwells in Jesus, here's what Jesus ends up doing. I got a gift for you. I got a gift for you. My mental understanding of the Father is contained in spirit. The Spirit of God, I am going to send that into you. And you know what this is going to do? It's going to teach you about your Father. It's going to help you, Jesus would say, to relate to him the way I do. I'm going to take my understanding and place it in you. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to rock your world to relate to God, not as a master, but as a father. It's going to create in you the ability to love him and others and self. Um, What does it mean to be influenced by the Spirit? Different people think of different things. When I hear people talk about the influence of the Spirit, I oftentimes hear people talking about emotional experiences or, you know, I felt like I should call and that must have been the spirit. Okay, that might happen. Some people talk about liver shivers. You know, and that, I haven't had a liver shiver. But, but some people, the, the spirit is equated with supernatural things. Oftentimes, this is troubling to me. The spirit is associated with the conviction of sin. When you lust or commit adultery, People believe that the Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, uh, <clears throat> you are committing adultery, by the way, and you are lusting. What covenant, again, let's be careful here. Again, the Spirit is a Spirit that wants us to obey. It all depends how he does it. Is the Spirit going to call your attention to the commandments that you're violating? That was a part of the old covenant. It's not going to be something he does because the spirit is not about the old covenant. It's about the new. The spirit will not take you under law. I don't think it's the spirit that says, by the way, you better watch out. That's not what the spirit does. He doesn't, what he does is he causes you to think of God as father. And, and the son has a permanent place in the family. He is going to, In fact, you know what the spirit is? Again, the spirit is not pro-immorality. I don't think the spirit is anti-immorality either. Do you know what the spirit is? Not pro-morality. Not pro-immorality. Pro-immortality. How would it change you if at a deeper level, You believe that you are a beloved son and daughter of God, and a 100 years from now, 50 years from now, you are going to be with your father in the place that you always wanted to be to the degree you believe that. How would that affect the way you live now if you believed it more deeply, that God was father? How would that, you know what it would do? I think it, when we understand that God is father, I think we, do a little bit better not craving 
if this is the only world you have, you're going to want to get everything you want to get. You're going to want to grab it now because you only go around once in life. But you know what? If this isn't really the world that you're going to end up in, if you're going into your best, this is, it's not your best life now, by the way. It's not. Your best life is then. You have not even begun to live. Some of you are thinking, my life's behind me. No, it isn't. Your life's ahead of you. That's what the Spirit engenders within us. You won't even be able to believe what He is like. And to the degree that that settles in us, it allows us to be the people He wants us to be. Um, the Spirit teaches us to think like Sons and daughters of God. He teaches us to call God Abba. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of his Son. He opens up our mind to see God as Jesus saw him. Look at the last passage. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It describes what the Spirit does here. You might look at God and in the Old Testament look at him and say, I'm not sure I like what I see. We see the surface of things. You know what the Spirit does? The Spirit is in touch with the deep thoughts of God. Knowing what God believes inside, that's what the Spirit knows. And what happens when the Spirit comes in and starts to influence you? You start to think about God in line with what God believes deep down. On the surface, it seems that God is all about, you. I want you to live by these ten rules. And there's an aspect of, you know, God wants obedience, yeah, but is that what God is really thinking about deep down? The Spirit discloses the deep things of God. Again, I've talked a bit before, the bathos of God. That's what it describes. A bathosphere goes into the water deep down. And what a bathosphere does, it is a submarine vehicle that that you are in that allows you to go deep and see what's underneath the water. God is very deep. And what the Spirit does is allows us to go down into the bathos of God, to understand the things that are deep within Him. And the things that are deep within God are going to make you feel like a beloved son or daughter of His. That's who He is deep down. Father, not master. And he is both father and king. That's what the Spirit does. Uh, the first half of the Bible cloaks the deep thoughts of God. The second half reveals them. Let me say that again. The first half of the Bible veils or cloaks the deep thoughts of God. The second half of the Bible reveals them. And by faith in Christ... The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that helped Jesus understand the Father, is in you. 
and is working to change the way you think about him. Um, The Spirit is the means by which our spiritual operating system is upgraded. Some of us, to some degree, we are switching operating systems, and we're we're all in en, en route. He's bringing us from to, and the Spirit is the means whereby we can begin to think of him as he would have us to think. Thinking doesn't change overnight. I imagine that this Roman child, after he's been under the care of guardians and managers, it's going to be a rough transition for him. He's going to come into the house of his father. He's not going to feel very comfortable. He spent a lot of nights being afraid of what was going to happen when he woke up. But over time, but if he remains in the house, and if he talks with the father, and if he stays there, if he remains there, the sense of the fear of judgment will be displaced by the sense of the awareness of love. It happens slowly. So what's the point? You're going to hear a lot about God as Father. And so my encouragement is remain. Keep coming back. We'll continue to talk about it and what will happen. The fear of judgment will be displaced by the love of God. It doesn't happen quickly. And as that happens, you'll find yourself relating to God more as Jesus did. Um, Salvation history. And just come on up. There's two stages to salvation history. The first stage is life with guardians and managers. That's the Old Testament. The second stage in salvation history is the stage that we're in. Um, It's life with God as Father. That's A.D. We pray for us. Father, thank you for your eternal purposes. Um, it was has been your internal purpose to cultivate a relationship with us that is characterized by thoughts of sons and daughters to fathers. And as a means to getting to that place, you put us when we were children as mankind under the temporary guardianship of old covenant law. You accomplished purposes. And that law was set aside as your ruling disposition when Jesus came. He died to release us from being under the jurisdiction of old covenant law and to restore us to that relationship that you had always determined for us, which is sons and daughters. You've placed your spirit within us. And that's why Jesus rose. Now we can be filled with your spirit and your spirit can influence to think of you as a father. Would you continue to allow us to understand the influence of your spirit, to be impacted by what he would seek to point out to us that we are You're in us, and you're with us, and good's ahead of us, guaranteed. Thanks for the new covenant and for the spirit that brings it into our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Father's Day, dads.